Eight decades ago, this place, Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most notorious concentration camp in German-occupied Poland, was the site of some of the worst Nazi atrocities. But as time passes and fewer survivors are alive to share their testimonies, the narratives of history become more fragile. These days, Holocaust denial is rare, but Holocaust distortion is on the rise. Governments revising facts, rewriting the past in a way that serves their political interests in the present. Any individual witness to the Holocaust I think is obliged to act as a witness. So one can't wipe it out of history. The murder was on such a large scale and each one has his or her own valuable story of that. You know, it's not exactly a picnic to me to talk about it, but I never refuse. My personal story has some aspects that really show how a poisonous ideology can turn people from being decent people to being murderers. At no point, at no time, did we ever know where we were going until we suddenly arrived at a place that we never heard of, Auschwitz. You can imagine the confusion. When these gates opened, there were these SS men walking around with guns on it. One of these shaven men with striped uniform came into our wagon, and he turned to my mother in Yiddish and said to us, which are your children? And she said, well, these are my two girls, and these are my two little boys. So he said, let the girls go ahead. Let them go ahead, you will see them later. And I remember looking back, I think my mother had a spotted scarf, looking back and we saw our mother and we waved and she waved back. That was the last time we would see her, I know. It's been 80 years since Mindu Hornick last saw her mother and brothers in the Auschwitz-Birkenau extermination camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. Between 1941 and 1945, more than a million people perished in the camp's gas chambers, the vast majority of them Jews. But there are those who have survived the Holocaust, telling their truths well into their 90s. How important are first-hand accounts, testimonies of those who actually witnessed the atrocities that were committed here in Auschwitz to understanding what really happened? The word of survivors is a very important part of the authenticity of the story of Auschwitz because, of course, we have the sites, we have historical research, but if we really want to understand the human experience of this place, how those men, women and children who were deported here uh, suffered, how the system of dehumanization works, we need to listen to the words of people who went through this place. There were bodies everywhere on trolleys, um, emaciated bodies, and there were emaciated people in striped uniform walking around. 
aimlessly. We were taken to a washroom and we were stripped naked. We had to sit there with all these men um, with very roughly shaving our hairs. And then we were taken to be tattooed with a number. So that was it, we have lost our identity. We were still crying for our mother. Um, the people that were there said, can you see that smoke up there? Because the smell, by the way, yeah, is this terrible smell. And the gray ash was falling around us. And when you sort of caught it, it was greasy. We didn't know what it was. So one of the ladies said, don't be silly, you're going to see your mother. Can you see that smoke? That's where she is. They had everything planned. They built these, these extermination camps. Uh, brilliant engineers did that. It's, it's hard to believe. We had to have a false identity papers. I was given a completely different name and I was taught how to be a little Catholic girl. That was the beginning of running away from death virtually every single day. The words from the mouth of people who went through all circles of hell has a much more profound, I would say, impact than anything I or other historians can convey in our uh, words. Of course, with the passage of time, this struggle to preserve the memory of the most horrifying genocide in Europe's and arguably world history it becomes more and more important. Adolf Hitler sowed the seeds for that genocide from the moment he rose to power in the early 1930s. Germany's defeat in World War I resulted in Berlin having to pay large reparations and give up significant territory, leaving Germans angry and humiliated. They were looking for someone to blame, and Hitler offered them a scapegoat, Europe's Jewish population. Over the course of the Second World War, Nazi Germany and its collaborators systematically murdered some six million Jews to make way for what Hitler considered a superior Aryan race. Eight decades later, the generation of those who did survive the Holocaust is slowly disappearing, and with it are their memories. With every Holocaust survivor who passes away, another set of memories dies with them first-person accounts of the horrors of Nazism become increasingly rare and the risk of history being revised or rewritten grows larger. Distortion or revision or denial has been with us. Of course there is a risk that, uh, that the, the, the farther we are from historical events, the, the memory of these events is more fragile. There may be less people who can be the eyewitnesses that are um, incredibly important when we try to prove that something happened. There are still survivors among us, but there are very few of them. Their voice becomes more and more faint. They are unable to confront, let's say, uh, distortion, denial, the way they did 10 or 20 years ago. And mind you, each and every country, uh, let's say, impacted by the Holocaust, tries to rewrite the history of the Holocaust in order to make it useful to its own, 
national or state uh, reasons. Uh, sometimes it's very cynical, sometimes it's not cynical, but we see these attempts ongoing, mostly in countries of Eastern and Central Europe, where actually Holocaust physically happened. A really central question is kind of why that historical revisionism is on the rise, why we're seeing it across Europe. And the reason for that is, in my opinion, directly linked to the rise in far-right politics across the continent. The far-right fundamentally understands how to use history, how to manipulate it, and it's actually really simple in a way. History, it really moves people. And if you understand how to connect with them about an issue that that people are really emotional about even today, you can get voters coming to polls to, to support you. Um, one example, Hungary, which was deeply complicit in the Holocaust. The trains carrying 430,000 Hungarian Jews to their deaths at Auschwitz in the spring and summer of 1944. These Jews were collected, were put on the trains, not by the Germans. They were put on the trains by Hungarian officials, civil, military, police. So in Hungary, what happens now is a very sustained, a very energetic attempt to shift the blame entirely on the Germans. So they don't deny that Hungarian Jews en masse have been murdered. It's simply not us. That kind of revisionism, the patriotic spin that puts nations on the right side of history, is nowhere more evident than in Poland. Like so many Nazi-occupied countries, under Hitler's rule, Poland was divided. Some Poles risked their lives to help save Jews, but many others helped the Nazis, some as collaborators, some as perpetrators. It's an ugly truth that has been largely suppressed in Poland since the end of the Second World War. First under 50 years of communist occupation, then, more recently, by the right-wing Law and Justice Party, which has governed the country for the past eight years. Polish rewriting of uh, history of the Holocaust perhaps is the most conspicuous, the most brazen uh, of all attempts uh, made or done in Central Eastern Europe. Uh, and it's of course related to the fact that Holocaust in its mass, let's say, of victims occurred on Polish lands. Zbrodnie, które były popełnione w czasach II wojny światowej na polskiej ziemi, ponoszą Niemcy, ponoszą hitlerowskie Niemcy. What the current very nationalistic authorities in Poland do is something called a distortion of the Holocaust. Distortion recognizes that, you know, there was a Jewish catastrophe. However, our people, they say, had nothing to do with it. Basically, we, they say, Polish society, Amas, tried to rescue the Jews. And this, unfortunately, is a deep, profound fallacy. And a good example of that is the Yedwabne pogrom. So the Yedwabne massacre took place in 1941 in a Polish town where basically the, the non-Jewish population of this town turned onto their Jewish neighbors and murdered them uh, in, in massive, in mass numbers. And we know that Germans were in Yedwabne at the time, but that the killings were led almost unprompted, you could say unprompted, by the Polish population. 
So the, the overarching narrative that the Law and Justice Party has on the Holocaust is one that tries to paint all Polish citizens as being heroes during that time. And we simply, we, we know that's not true. So there were both sides. There were wonderful Polish people who, who at risk to themselves were helping the Jewish people to, to escape, to, to be hidden, etc., etc. But there were some people, even amongst the Polish people, who were anti-Semitic, and they were pleased that the Jews were being murdered. So we had to escape from every, every point, everywhere around us. There was danger that we were going to be handed over to the Gestapo and, and exterminated. In the five decades after World War II, when Poland was under Soviet rule, survivor accounts like those from Nelly Ben-Or were kept in what scholars call the communist freezer. But with the fall of communism in the 1990s, space for historical debate in Poland opened up, albeit briefly. Historians could suddenly write accounts of the past, the good and the bad, as it had happened. In 1998, Poland even set up the Institute of National Remembrance, or IPN, a body designed to reckon with the country's past under communist and Nazi occupation. Over the years, IPN has grown into a powerful force that shapes national historical discourse. Its numerous entities include Poland's largest archive, the biggest publisher of historical texts, and even a prosecutor's office. In the early 2000s, one of the IPN's first tasks was to investigate the Jadwapna massacre of July 1941, to shed light on a dark chapter in Poland's history. However, since then, the Institute's mission has changed. Today, under the law and justice government, the IPN seems less interested in investigating the past and more likely to promote a version of history that the ruling party approves of. In many ways, the, the changes that we've seen over the last couple of decades in the Institute mirror the changes we've seen in, in Polish society as a whole and the swing to the right wing. If you want to understand how the Institute of National Remembrance works and the kind of uh, narratives that are promoted, it's really key to understand that its leadership is appointed by parliament and that directly you know, links it to the government that is in power at the time. The Institute's budget has doubled under the Law and Justice Party, um, which I think shows the importance that the, the government has put in the role this, this institute should have over history. Founded in 2001, the Law and Justice Party, known under its Polish acronym PEACE, has governed Poland on and off the past two decades and has long relied on its nationalist agenda to garner support. But since regaining power in 2015, the politics of memory have become a policy priority for peace, relying on state-affiliated institutions like IPN to push narratives that whitewash Poland's past. Prawda historyczna jest taka, że Polacy w żaden zinstytucjonalizowany sposób, w żaden systemowy sposób nie brali udziału w Holokauście. 
peace has stocked the institute with loyalists, and in 2018, the government introduced the so-called IPN or Holocaust Law, a bill that criminalized research in and writing about Polish complicity in Nazi crimes. The law has been used to target historians like Jan Grabowski. They wanted basically to muzzle historians, educators. Uh, they wanted once again to protect their own um, myth of innocence, national innocence. And now the law has been in part repealed, so it's no longer criminal um, uh, provisions. But there are civil provisions which go with it. And I would say that in a way they actually won, because a law does not have to be vigorously applied in order to freeze the debate. Um, uh, this atmosphere of palpable anxiety, if not fear, is already felt throughout Poland in, let's say, academic circles. One of the biggest um, impacts that it had was the, the impact on educators across Poland. The kind of high school teachers and Holocaust educators that I've spoken to, to really cite that as a, a key moment when they had to really start questioning themselves and being scared about what, what kind of topics could be discussed in school. The IPN spokesperson agreed to an interview. I wanted to ask him about the so-called Holocaust law and the allegations that the Institute plays a crucial part in the Law and Justice Party's efforts to politicize Poland's past. However, that interview didn't happen. Whilst the IPN allowed us to film their archives, the interview got cancelled at the very last minute and they said nobody else was available to speak to us. They offered a written statement instead. Despite numerous follow-ups, that statement never came. However, it's not just the IPN, Poland or in fact the Holocaust that are part of a politicized narrative. Politicians and governments have long sought to frame the past in a way that suits their political agendas in the present. Turkey still denies that the Armenian genocide in the 1910s ever took place. The Serbian government to this day tries to twist the facts of its ethnic cleansing of Muslims in Kosovo and Bosnia in the 1990s. In China, the decade-long and ongoing incarceration of Uyghurs has been erased from public consciousness. The list goes on and on. Until now, we were talking about the countries of uh, democratic uh, European Union, Poland, Hungary. However, if we move uh, to China or to Turkey, we are dealing here with totalitarian, authoritarian systems, where you have actually people being killed. Uh, for their points of view, for their opinions. Second, you have governments which exert, especially as in the case of China, um, not whole, but nearly whole control over information, what people can think, what people can express. So we are, with this total control, sailing into an uncharted territory. How social memory, social remembrance will be shaped. There are other examples as well, the lack of reckoning that's happened in Russia with its own history of Soviet repression is a direct symptom of the war we see happening in Ukraine. The, the motto for the Holocaust is, is never, never forget. And the, the motto in Russia for decades has been never remember. I think we're, we're really living through a, a time where there's an increasing focus by politicians on history 
especially by politicians who understand how, how it motivates people and how it moves people. The history of atrocities like the Holocaust throws up some basic questions about crimes against humanity in the here and now. How will future generations, when they look back at the ethnic cleansings or genocides unfolding today, judge our own complicity? Those of us who did not do enough to prevent mass crimes, despite living in a much more connected, much more informed world. I am sure that there will be new memorials in 30 years, in 40 years, 50 years, that will commemorate the, the many different places where today people are dehumanized, uh, that, where genocides unfold or are happening. Of course, when we, uh, when we talk about the story of Auschwitz here, people concentrate on two groups of people, on the perpetrators and the victims. But we need to remember that there is a third group, and these are bystanders. And of course, we can ask questions about bystanders 80 years ago, but we need to remember that we are talking about ourselves, because we are all bystanders of evil in our towns, in our countries, in the world. And this is why we believe that the story of Auschwitz should also be a mirror in which we look at ourselves and we look at our moral responsibility as bystanders. That's why Auschwitz today is as much about commemorating the victims of the past as it is a warning sign for future generations. The genocides are a product of us, humans, the end result of the hateful ideologies that we, as people, create, tolerate or execute. Meaning history can always repeat itself. In the words of Auschwitz survivor Primo Levi, it happened, therefore, it can happen again. My personal story has some aspects that really show how a horrible ideology can be disastrous. When we escaped from the ghetto, my mother was advised to take a train to Warsaw. And we came to the station. My mother turned to one of the officials of the station and said, when is the train to Warsaw going? And she said, I'll tell you something. At midnight, there is a train for the German officers, uh, but it's usually half empty. When the train came, he took us personally to a compartment with four high-ranking SS officers, and they were wonderful. They said the child should lie down and she should sleep. And one of them took off his coat, which to me was a, a symbol of, of horrendous fear and covered me with that coat that I sh should be warm. And in the safety of the, these four SS men, we arrived in Warsaw next morning. This was prejudice in its highest form in its lowest form. <laughs> because had they known, these four officers, that my mother and I were Jewish, they would have shot us on the spot. One thing which is also important is to remember not to dehumanize the perpetrators, because in this way, there is no link, there's no warning. If, if these were monsters, and we are good people living today, and we would never be able to do that, then we feel secure, but it's false. 
because the story tells us that human beings, people who are educated can create and believe in ideologies that can lead to, to human suffering and death. Look what happened since in Srebrenica, Darfur, Bosnia. They're killing their own people because they just have a different belief. That's terrible, but with us, they built factories of death. Never before in history has there ever been built factories of death. I wish I could say I, that this was the last time, but I don't believe in that, to be quite honest. But hopefully for a long time, it will be a warning to people to beware of, of prejudice, prejudice, prejudice. Be very careful about what you believe in and what you trust. I would like to instill this in, in the young generation. Judge very carefully what ideology you subscribe to. There must be at the, at the basis of any ideology something that benefits humanity, not something that destroys it. Thank you.